Um, so through September, we'll be going through it. But I, I say it's, it's certainly a jog because there are 50 chapters in Genesis, and we're going to move. We started January 1, uh, which actually I don't think we started until January 8th. The, the second week of January, and we're moving through. That's moving rather quickly, uh, I would say, but we're moving through, and there are these sub-themes within Genesis. Uh, the way that the writers of Genesis, the, the initial readers of Genesis, if you will, though, too, the way they would view Genesis as a book is it's two parts. Chapters 1 through 11 is part 1 of Genesis, and chapters 12 through 50 is part two. And there are some strong themes there, but we're kind of taking sub-themes within that and looking at those. And so the sub-theme that we're in is, am I my brother's keeper? That's kind of the question that hangs in the air uh, that we are looking at as we look at these stories. And so we're going to keep... Um, yeah, see that Cain part, my brother's keeper, so there we're moving, and this morning we're talking about, we've been talking about a personal responsibility in the story, moral responsibility in the story, collective or communal responsibility. This morning we're going to talk a bit about God's responsibility, uh, if you will, in the story. So what I want to do is... Um, uh, I'm going to give a brief synopsis, but before we get there, over at Connecting Point, they're rather large, but these are intended to be bookmarks, and what they are on the bookmarks are there are key Hebrew words, and what they mean, key Hebrew words throughout the scriptures, there's one, the last word on here is a Greek word, so there's one Greek word found in the New Testament, kenosis found in the letter to Philippi, Philippians, but the rest are Hebrew words, and when you can come to learn these Hebrew words, it will help bring out all sorts of depth and meaning in the scriptures, and so uh, we just want to provide that as a resource. You can grab one. Uh, always good to have that, and one of the words, why I highlight that, we will get into this morning, and we'll highlight one of the words and how it draws out all sorts of meaning in our story. But I want to start with a brief synopsis of where we've been, but it'll also function as a frame for today. Uh, so that is my hope. Uh, so where we've been, well, is in the beginning, the divine creator summons goodness and shalom out of chaos. That's what we read in the opening couple of verses. The divine creator summons goodness and shalom, peace, that is, out of chaos, sculpting humanity in the divine image, and then inviting humanity to partner with God in stewarding the, the dynamic creation forward. That is the invitation. Humanity, as we read in the story, eventually chooses self-interest rather than harmony with the divine. This initiates a distortion in the relationships between humanity and God, humanity with themselves, humanity with one another, and humanity with creation. There's a distortion, a break that happens when humanity decides self-interest is how we will run. And then through the stories of Adam, Eve, Cain, and Noah, 
we see within the personal, within these personal stories, what happens really at a universal level when it comes to humanity. We have these personal or what seem like individual stories, but they're actually telling a larger story of the human condition. And it's actually giving insight into what will be the people, the community known as Israel. Noah, who we got introduced to, and many of us know from Sunday school fame, Noah takes personal responsibility, we read about. He, he takes moral responsibility initially, but he fails to take collective or communal responsibility. We see that at the end when Noah is lying naked in his tent, drunk by himself, and he is just kind of abandoned community. Now, here's the thing, and this is really important. From our vantage point, it's easy in these early stories to focus, or I would say drown in, if you want pun, uh, right? Drown in the idea of punishment. We think punishment, and we often see in the story, and that kind of just jumps out to us, and we can hyper-focus on punishment. But I would argue what gets lost in the book of Genesis, as well as the Bible as a whole, and certainly in our society, is the centrality of the message of restoration. So restoration is a key theme through the entire biblical narrative. We see it in the book of Genesis. We often miss it because we're paying attention to other things. Punishment being a rather large thing we pay attention to. So with this word, restoration, in front of us, I want to sink into the text for today because the question that is swimming within this whole thing is a massive question in the book of Genesis, but it's a massive question for us today. What is the deal with this God? What's the deal with God? Or what's God's deal? Last week I introduced a common literary tool used in ancient Eastern writers, most specifically Jewish writers, literary tools that they used. The la last week I uh, introduced the borrowed cultural narrative. It's a literary tool the ancient writers used, but Jewish writers especially used, called borrowed cultural narrative. This tool helps us interact with the many narratives told by neighboring communities, societies. So their stories that they wrote and how they interact with the Hebrew stories. Because there were many, and there are many creation stories. There are many flood, there are several flood stories. The question becomes, how does the biblical story compare and contrast with these other stories. So I'm going to introduce two more literary tools today that the ancient people used. So I hope you can work with me and bear with me in some Bible teaching nerdiness this morning. Okay? It's a good time. But we're going to dig in, and it is so important. So if you can hang with it, we're going to pull this thing apart, and we're going to have lots of fun. And yes, we're going to at some point get to the flannel board. 
I'm telling you, I really feel like it's going to make its presence felt in this book of Genesis. Woo-wee. This is not, jumping into these literary tools, here's the thing, it's not about playing smarty pants. This is about providing you all and us as a community with very important tools for approaching the Bible in context. The way the ancient writers and the readers approached the biblical library. Why is this important? Because these tools help us excavate the questions the Bible is asking of itself. The writers are asking, and we want those questions. We want to be digging into those because it highlights the heart of the meta-narrative or the meta-movement of the scriptures. Are you with me? Woo, it's going to be good. So, uh, theologian Marty Solomon says it really well. When you start asking the questions the Bible is asking, you start getting the right answers. These answers start to look an awful lot like Jesus and sound an awful lot like the gospel. What's so stunning is that we got here using Jewish hermeneutics and noticing literary devices from their ancient playbook rather than using Western systematic theology, which consistently led us to much different, less Jesus-y answers. And when a, when a theologian is using Jesus-y, uh, it's good. This is the power of asking better questions. You can find Marty Solomon on his podcast, The, the Bema Podcast, uh, and it's fantastic, and you can look that up. Um, and he has a new book that is out called Asking Better Questions of the Bible. Uh, very good. Uh, and you'll see that. So within that, it's really important we do this. So the literary tool I want to uh, introduce this morning, we'll have two, but this first one, it is probably the most common used by Jewish writers, and it's called a chiasm. Chiasm, or it can be referred to as inverted parallelism. Inverted parallelism. Now, for Jewish writers, this tool is used, and you'll know, like, and then you'll be like, oh, is that what it is? They use this tool to bury treasure within the story. When you think to yourself, gosh, it seems like the Bible just has endless layers of meaning and depth. It's because of tools like this where they very specifically are trying to bury meaning and bury all these treasures of insight and beauty in the text. And they do so with a chiasm. The author, and it goes like this, constructs a story in an inverted fashion where the first part of the story mirrors the last part of the story. The second part of the story mirrors the second to the last part of the story. The third part of the story mirrors the third to the last party part until they converge and meet at the center, which is where the meaning, purpose, the drive of the story is leading. Are you with me? It's beautiful. So watch this. This is the chiasm when it comes to our flood story. It looks like this. In Genesis 7-4, so I, A1, B1 is how we're doing this. Seven days we read in Genesis 7-4. At the end of the story, that the numbers create the chiasm in this one, seven days. Then next, 
we have seven days. So then it's another one that's B1 to B2, then C1 to C2, and it moves until they converge in the middle. Is it just one slide or do they go through? We go, okay, yeah, just uh, some of us need to see. I, I want that to be highlighted in yellow. So now we go. I tried to do it all the way to the center for you all. I didn't in my notes because, but anyways. We get to the center. So the chiasm works. Do you see how that is? Boom, and then it converges in the center, and it gets to the theme, the heartbeat of this story is God remembered Noah, which raises the question, why is that the center of the story? What happens is the numbers, so this is really important, and I've said this before, numbers are tools in the story. They're not so much literal facts as we see them used as tools to create this, this chiasm, so that you reverse back on themselves at the end of the story to put this thing together. Do you see how there was a movement there? So then, why is this the center God remembered? Great question. Excellent question. There is, this is where both uh, chiasm and the whole borrowed cultural narrative, they actually partner up really well here to do similar work. The remembering is a huge reveal for what this God is like. So if you're comparing this story with all the other flood stories that were in the ancient world, you begin to go, they're raising the question, what is this God like? When we read God remembers Noah, it can throw us for a loop. Because our idea of remembering comes from forgetting or losing sight of. So this is where um, the Hebrew language understandably kind of trips us up. Because in the Hebrew language, remember has a different meaning than our idea of remembering. Because we think of remembering or losing sight of, so we go, I can't remember where I put the tickets. I forgot. I, and that's kind of how our mind works. So we're like, did God forget Noah? Is the question, because now God remembered Noah, so did God forget Noah at some point? No. The word for remember in Hebrew is the word zakhar. Go ahead and say zakhar. Zachar, and here's the thing, it actually means choosing an action or a way forward in light of the past. We tend to merely recall the past intellectually, which then too often leads to wallowing or drowning in sorrow or regret, that's kind of how we think of it. Hebrew remembering is recalling and reflecting on a past experience so as to choose an action or a way forward in light of that past experience. So it is rooted, remembering is rooted in a clear redemptive action in the present ignited by the past. Are you with me? This is really important. For example, I reflect on an experience or a relationship I once had in the past, which leads me to choosing how to better be present in love now. Are you with me? Okay. 
So I think of it like this. This is how I'd say Hebrew remembering is not living in the past, but living more expansively in light of the past. That gets some of the Hebrew meaning. So in this story, we have God's active faithfulness in light of the covenant previously made with Noah. And if you remember, Noah and his sons, the covenant was hanging his bow in the sky saying, we're not doing violence anymore. And oh, by the way, uh, the NRSV a translation that was updated this past fall, I, I have that Bible and I was reading, and it just has bow. It doesn't have rainbow. Because the word kesheth, that, me, that we translate bow, while we translate rainbow, where that's the only place in the Bible, in the Hebrew scriptures, is in this Genesis story that we put rainbow in, in English, but now the NRSV says bow because all the other places, 76 times it's used in the Hebrew scriptures, it means bow as in bow and arrow. It means bow or archers. And so it's a picture of God hanging his bow in the clouds saying we are no longer doing violence like this. That's my promise, my covenant with you, Noah, and the generations to follow. Are you with me? So, this is God's active faithfulness in this. He's now acting on that. So, it's not a, hey, I forgot you, Noah. It's I'm acting on what we talked about, the deal we made, essentially the promise I gave to you, which is going to move creation toward restoration. Are you with me? Okay. Remembering as the center reveals a God then in this story and a flood narrative that is wildly different than the other gods and flood stories from the surrounding culture. Sumerian, Chaldean, Mesopotamian, and Egypt are the most common flood stories that we see, that we know. You can look them up. These other stories, now here's the thing, hold to a narrative in which humanity has corrupted, polluted, and foolishly made a mess of the world, and the gods, the gods created them, and they are angry now. And so in anger, the gods plot to deluge the world with a flood and wipe out the obnoxious humanity. That's the other flood stories. If you think, oh, but there was a flood story, and it sounds really kind of bonkers. Yes, it does. And if you're like, God must, you know, God's really angry, our God in the Bible. There's nothing in the Genesis story that actually says anything about anger, where God is angry. It actually speaks, and you read the story, read through it. It has a heartbroken God. God is heartbroken that humanity has chosen time and time again to walk away from God, ignore God, to not be with God, and God is heartbroken and says we need a new creation. Still confusing. But the Genesis flood story and this God center on partnering with humanity to create this new world or a new creation. Hey, Noah, we're going to do this together. God turns to humanity and says, I'd like to work with you in doing this. It's a big deal. So I know this can maybe feel heady. Maybe some of you are like, wait, what? Whoa. Okay, we're going to take a deep breath. But we have to keep going. Uh, but let's take that in. I know. So let me give you an example of why this is important. Because this is important. 
There are too many Christian education systems that avoid, deny, or try and hide all these other flood narratives, creation narratives. Let's not talk about those. We won't bring them up. We'll deny them even if someone were to bring them up. You see this too often. Or maybe they try and use apologetics, which is a very Western systematic argumentation device to prove that Genesis flood story came first, which historical scholarship vehemently just says that doesn't make any sense. But here's the thing. The question is, why, why feel threatened by these other stories? Because what I have come to find is how much more brilliance and depth there is in this story because of the differences in these stories. You actually find that these stories are bigger, more powerful, deeper when you go, yeah, there are these other stories. And they were written before our story. That's great. Fine. And why this is important, again, here's where we find the all-too-common story of the sheltered teenager going off to college where they're introduced to these other stories. They hear them, some college class or something. Professor starts talking about flood stories, and then the kid all of a sudden just starts to freeze and feels like his faith is now leaving him, or it cheated him, or it lied to him, or he's all of a sudden feeling a bit bankrupt in this, and it's crumbling, or they go, we need to go into attack mode. See, our faith is being attacked. No, no, no. And I got to be defensive and I've got to be. And all of a sudden, there is this dissonance in, and you know what? Neither one of those responses to feel like it's all falling apart or to feel like we got to get angry and attack, neither is necessary and can be avoided. If we will do the work and just say, oh, let's talk about this, let's bring it into light. Let's really dig in. We don't have to feel bad. Oh, we didn't catch that. We didn't do that. Well, let's talk about it now. Great, 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 great. I didn't know about those stories, so we didn't get to talk about them, but let's talk about them now. It's that. Let's just be honest. Let's be transparent. Let's dig into this. Are you with me? Okay. It's really important. The chiasm and the borrowed cultural narrative hold these stories, all of them, up to each other so we can come to find that the God of the Bible is a very, very different God than these other gods that are talked about. This God actually knocks the story off its logical foundation. As I highlighted last week, I want to highlight again, the story moves from, at the beginning it says, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Then later on in the story, even though, there's a promise made that even though every inclination of the human heart is evil, God has said, we're not going that way again. I'm aware of that. God's like, I'm aware of you. I know you. But we've made a promise and we're moving in a different direction. God's remembering or acting on his covenant shows a radically different God than the other gods. It is stunning and brilliant and hope-filled. Are you with me? One more literary tool, then we'll come up for air, then we're going to zoom out and dial into why all this holds immense meaning for us today. Sound good? Love it. 
Next literary tool, historical subtext. Historical subtext. We're going to look at this historical subtext in light of covenants. So there are all these ancient covenants that were given. The most dominant ancient Near Eastern covenant is known as the suzerain vassal covenant. Anyone? Anyone? You're right now. Sorry, we weren't taught this. Freddie, Freddie, thank you. Put your hand down. I know we didn't talk about it in Sunday school. I'm sorry, Freddie. Sit down. Freddie is our just fantastic Sunday school kid who has all sorts of questions. We love Freddie. Freddie, we just, we're not going to get to it all today. Okay, buddy? Now, suzerain vassal covenant. Some of you are really confused. And Freddie. <laughs> Freddie is in, never mind. Um, in simple terms, here's the suzerain vassal. Here's how it works. There is a greater dominant party, the suzerain. Typically, this is an imperial power that subjugates its neighbor into a forced alliance. The lesser party is known as the vassal. This tense relationship is often found with heavy taxes and leveraging power to force the vassal to give their political support in return for imperial protection. It's a picture of nearly all of the ancient stories except what happens in Genesis. God, though, functions as the suzerain and Noah as the vassal. Yet it's God who keeps the covenant who remembers Noah. We find this God taking the power of being in charge, of being the imperial power, if you will, taking that power and leverage of fear, oh, I'm in charge, and hangs it up, the bow. The suzerain says, mm, I'm not playing that game that all of these other stories play. Historical subtext, then, is used by these writers to subvert the suzerain vassal covenant. You see that? That's why historical subtext, they're taking it and they're going, we're going to use the context and we're going to subvert it. It's a brilliant tool that the Jewish writers use all throughout the Hebrew scriptures, what we often call the Old Testament. Are you with me? Really important. The audience of Genesis sees this take place and they would be found breathless. A stunned silence, tears welling up in their eyes and then a standing ovation. This God is different. This story is different. And they would be overwhelmed with gratitude. Whew. This God loves us beyond our sin. This God hovers over and overcomes chaos. Refusing to hold it against us or hold it over us the way these ancient stories do, these other. So our literary devices ask, what kind of God is this? This is what has changed everything in my life. To learn of this God. Deep breath. Now I want to zoom out so we can kind of gather this together. 
our story begins with this line, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was what? Formless and empty. That in the Hebrew is tohu vavohu. Go ahead, say tohu vavohu. It's got a beautiful little dance to it. Yeah, tohu vavohu means wild and waste. Chaos is how the Hebrew people understood it. It's chaos. And that was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Two things signal this chaos. Darkness and deep, which is more than just water. There is a, uh, even more to it. There's a darkness and a depth and there is this kind of murkiness that the Hebrew people were afraid of. Deep waters, Hebrew people, no thank you. Jewish people fear that kind of water. The Spirit of God, though, what we're told in the story, is hovering over the waters. This is a big deal because in the face of chaos, what's being communicated, in the face of utter darkness, the divine is still present. Think of your life. In the face of darkness, in the face of utter despair, God is hovering, is still present is present over the chaos. It's my ring that I had made in Israel. On my ring, in Hebrew, it reads shalom, it reads peace over chaos. Shalom al-tohu is what my ring reads. Peace over the chaos, because that is our God. I need to be reminded of it all the time. This God hovers over the chaos. This God has conquered the chaos. No matter the chaos in my life, I know God is with me. Are you with me? Okay. Big deal. Peace over the chaos. No matter how dark, bleak, chaotic we find things, the divine is hovering Darkness, then, does not get the final word. Next, humanity was invited to partner with the divine in stewarding tov, that is the word good in Hebrew, tov, which is a dynamic word. Humanity is asked to partner with God in moving, stewarding tov forward. From the very beginning, we have been invited to participate with the divine, but it's always been a choice. Humanity, will you partner in moving Tov forward? We can choose Tov or chaos. In the beginning, God filled creation with Tov. Then we read that humanity filled the earth with violence. So in Genesis 6.11, it says this. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become. Why? Because for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. It didn't happen overnight. I previously pointed out that in a couple of, just in one genealogy, what was written in a couple of verses stretches nearly 1,700 years. It was a slow spiral of chaos leading up to what we know as the flood story. Now, here's just a really helpful picture or story. The rabbis have told a story about the generation of the flood, this slow-moving thing. It said like this. Uh, you'd go to market with a bucket of produce. 
Those that pass by all casually steal less than a penny's worth from the bucket. Too little to prosecute, but enough so that by day's end you'd have nothing. So it is with our world today. Correct? Ooh. Which takes us to the flood where Noah takes personal responsibility, moral responsibility, but does not take collective or communal responsibility. We find him alone, lying drunk and naked in his tent. Then his youngest son, Ham, not Ham, Ham, the father of Canaan, we're told over and over, sees his dad's nakedness, runs out giggling like a teenager to his brothers, dad's naked in the tent, come here. Which then, what that story though is saying is he's ignoring the cultural mandate to not shame oneself by viewing nudity, but even more so, don't go even further and more shameful and invite others to view the nudity. And he does that by going and get his brothers. His brothers, though, thought better and tactfully in the story covered their father's nakedness and didn't do that. Then we get this in Genesis 9.24. We read this. Noah learns what his son Ham did, awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him. He said, cursed be Canaan, which is Ham's son, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. This moves us into chapter 10 of Genesis. And more of our favorite literature, genealogies. Yay! But we're not going to read them all. I just want to highlight some key pieces that are really a big deal. Let's start with Genesis 10, verse 1. And these are the genealogical records of Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. Now, here's the thing. This is the fourth time the line, these are the genealogical, genealogical records, or this is the account of, determining your translation to, depending on that. Fourth time it appears in Genesis. We, I know, sadly, find genealogies boring often, but they are very deeply meaningful to the Hebrew people. Because recall when Genesis was put together. When was it collected, edited, and when was it put together? during the Babylonian exile. Way what we think of at the end of our Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. That's when this is put together and this matters because it's the people reflecting and putting in genealogies. What they're doing is they're now a people in Babylon. They've lost everything. And by putting together genealogies, they're saying our beginning though, our roots were always about being the people of God. So let's tell the story of how we both were and then lost the plot. We're with God and then lost the plot. We'll tell this through genealogies. Now, so I would say genealogies for them, it's a marker of meaning. These are our roots. These things matter. This is where we began from the way we do tattoos. I want to remember this moment. I want to remember this experience. I remember this, so I have it tattooed on me. Genealogies were like tattoos for them. Like this keeps us grounded, rooted, remembering our 
core. So it raises the question, what did these people do with that original blessing? Until now, all of the accounts, these genealogies that have related to individuals, but we just see here, now we're going to get a shift in the language the writer uses to symbolize nations and ethnic affiliations. So Genesis 10.6 goes like this. The sons of Ham, ready? The sons of Ham, Cush, or Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. Any of those look familiar to you? To the reader, then, and to us, those are not individuals, those are nations, which is the point. You see what's happening here? They're now just jumping and saying, these will become whole people groups. Genesis 10, 8 and 10 through 11 says this, Cush was the father of Nimrod, which is probably the second best Green Day album, but Anyways, that's something else. Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. The first centers of his kingdom, he's building something, were what? Babylon, Uruk, Akkad, and Kalna, all in where? A very interesting From that land, Nimrod then goes to Assyria, where he built... Nineveh, which is this capital with its city squares. Does anyone see kind of a woe sign? Like, oh, whoo, something's flashing like, whoa, this, something big is going on here. Genesis 10, 13, and 14. Egypt was the father of the Ludites. Notice right, father of a person or people groups. Father of the Ludites, Anamites, Lehabites, Naph, Tulites, Pathruasites, Kasluhites, from whom, who came? Philistines, also of Sunday school fame. They get lots of play in Sunday school. And the Kaphtorites. Again, father of nations rather than individuals. And we got the Philistines in there, so something big is being built here in these genealogies. 10.15 says this, Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zemorites, and Hamatites. Just like that, we pretty much covered all of the people groups who become a thorn in the side of Israel at some point. All placed here, ready? as nations born of a curse. You see what the storyteller just did? All of these people who become a thorn in the sight of Israel, mm, we're going to say they're born of a curse. <laughs> now, Genesis 10, 18 to 20. Later, the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon, toward Gerar as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah and Zeboim as far as Lashah. These are the sons of Ham by their what? Clans and languages in their territories and nations. Genealogies are no longer boring, are they? 
whoo, we got just humming. I get excited. Now, let's go, because now the second most exciting thing, maps. All right, let's go to a map. You have Sidon, Sidon, way up towards the north of Israel. It said that there, the, these tribes now will span what we know as Israel. Then we have Sidon way up there. Next slide. Then we go all the way down. I wrote in Lashah because it wasn't there. Kind of at the bottom of the Dead Sea, what we know as the Salt Sea, Dead Sea. Way down here. Gaza's over here. So you have, and then Sidon, way up there, what's it saying? These tribes back then began to spread out and essentially covered what will later, which we're going to get into, Abraham being told to go where? Here. Oh, it's so good. I, I think it's fantastic. Maps make me excited. They're really important, though, when we learn what's happening not just to read it, then picture it, go to it, see it, look at what's going on here. Maps are fantastic. Maps are one of my wife's favorite things. She was her favorite thing when we went to Israel. She's like, maps, maps are the best. Um, we are nerds together. Now, uh, next, what will happen, and we're not going to dig into it, Shem's tree. Now, here's the thing. We, we hear Shem, uh, Noah's son Shem, who is the oldest, Here's where we got from Shem is where we get the word Semitic, which is a synonym for Jewish. It's to say this is where the, this is going to give birth and move to. Shem's line is going to quickly jump to Abraham and the forming of the nation known as Israel, who will be invited to be a nation of priests to model restoration in the midst of the chaos that's in the land. Are you with me? Now, next week we're going to look at Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. We're going to do a quick peek so we can just move this thing forward. A quick peek into 11 to get this kind of wrapped up. Genesis 11, verse 2 said this, As people moved, what? Eastward, they found a plain in where? Oh, interesting. And settled there. Now, your translation, maybe that you read, says Shinar. Shinar is Babylonia. They're the same. So that's there, and they settled there. They moved east. East or eastward signals to the reader that humanity continues to move away from the divine. That's what that signals. Anyone familiar with the book, East of Eden? Yeah, it's, it's this idea that we're moving away from our intended place, purpose, thing. Yep. This takes us back to Genesis 3 and 4 and uh, disregarding and not following God done by Adam, Eve, and Cain who move east of Eden, east of where they were intended to dwell. And now, let's do some reflection. The further humanity moves away from God, the more dis disconnected they become with themselves, with one another, and with creation. We can say this is something that happened, but can we not also say that this is something that happens? The, when people move further, distance themselves, withhold, disregard the divine, when we say we're going to ignore God, we become disconnected with ourselves, with one another, and with creation. 
we see that disruption. What is God's response? The divine continues to be faithful in moving toward humanity in all of these stories. We see over and over the God who doesn't give up on us. When we remember or we are reminded of whose we are and that we are endlessly loved, it can transform how we view ourselves and how we view others. Are you with me? And to take it further into the theme of this section of Genesis, we also then see in these stories God's heart for restoration that reaches to the ends of the earth, that reaches others, which poses the question to us, am I my brother's keeper? The answer then is an unflinching yes. Because God's love reaches to the ends of the earth, guarding, guiding our hearts to arc towards the ends of the earth as well. So let's tie one more cloud together, and then we'll be done, okay? I think that's like really a pastor's language for like we're at the 45-minute warning. Um, uh, I highlighted how the Hebrew storyline for their enemies began with a curse, right? You'll see why we did this. They say it goes back to a curse. All of our enemies go back to a curse. It's a way of saying, it's a way the Hebrew people say, watch when, as we move this story for, forward, what they have coming to them, they deserved. Okay? But God continually subverts that script as well. We were introduced to the origins and development of one of Israel's biggest enemies, Assyria. And the capital of Assyria is Nineveh, which means we come back to our flannel board. Yes! And we have on our flannel board a boat with some people on it, a big fish, not a whale, darn it. Um, it's a big fish, and then Jonah is in the belly, or I can't fit him in there. Uh, you have to use your imagination. Can you do that with me? Thank you. Uh, so, Jonah in the belly of the fish, praying, like, stinks. Um, so, in there, it takes us to our story. Do you see, way back there, we've had this thing situated, and we actually come to this summons to the Hebrew prophet Jonah was to do what? Go to the great city Nineveh and tell them, invite them to repent. And what does Jonah's response be? What is it? No! Why? Those people are the worst. They have destroyed my people. They have done horrible things. I will not go to them because I know you, God. And if they repent, you will receive them. So Jonah goes overboard, but eventually Jonah gets on board. See how he did that? With the whole thing. Goes, gives the worst prophetic sermon in the history of the Hebrew Scriptures. That's not opinion. He gives five Hebrew words. He goes into the city and says five Hebrew words. That's me saying I've got a message today. And it's five words long. You'd all go, oh, well, he's broken. 
Jonah goes into the city, gives five Hebrew words, and the story says the entire city, including animals, put on sackcloth and ashes. Sparky the dog, Betsy the cow, sackcloth and ashes. Which is hilarious, and that's the way it's meant to be. Jonah is actually very much a satirical, comical book. Letter, but they all did this. They repented. The entire city which Jonah knew was possible, and that's what he loathed. Why? Because Jonah is a micro of the macro with how humanity, ready, wants punishment for their enemies. Wherein we find this God of the scriptures constantly and consistently desiring for restoration for every single person. Whoo, including animals. Even the deplorable Assyrians. That's how big this God's love is. It can hold us, transform us, with more than enough available to do the same for our enemies. Much later on, Jesus is asked by one of the religious groups of his day, the Pharisees, to give a sign that he is the Messiah. And Jesus says, the only sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah, which is what? I'm going to go into the belly of the fish. I am going to take death and put it away. Overcome it, conquer it. And there is dying to the small in order to make room for the new creation. We're putting the ego in the grave which is teaching us, we're putting that away so that there is the birth of new creation. Hooey! That's, that's his one sign. That's what I'll give you. Maybe you're here, and you have a loop in your head that is stuck on repeat. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not kind enough. I'm not loving enough. I don't make enough. I don't have enough. I'm just not enough. The center and central truth is that you are remembered by the divine, which means you are invited to be remembered to the divine. You are remembered by the divine, and so you're invited to be remembered to the divine. It's God's heart to restore that which has been taken apart that which has been broken. Restoration is God's goal for you and for me and for all. Maybe you're here, though, and you're stuck in your thinking that, well, I know I'm loved, but those people, they are the enemy of God. They are simply chaos creators. So you sit and wait with teeth clenched. When is punishment coming for them? Meanwhile, the divine hovers over the chaos, wooing and summoning a people to be partners in reconciliation. With the end goal of restoration, which, by the way, is what it means to experience salvation. You see the movement in the story. Do you see the bigness in all of the little, little particles? 
And there's an invitation for us over and over and over again to see that this God is different. In all of the voices and narratives that are moving about in our world, telling us we're not enough. We've gone too far down. We can't get out. We're too broken. We're too messy. We've done too much wrong. We have a story that says you are remembered and you are loved and you are invited to come home to what you were created to be all along. And then when you step into that story and that truth, it can begin to draw out of us a love, an arc of our heart toward all people who are also loved and being wooed by God. Gracious God, I bless you for loving us so much that you can overcome and have overcome and will continue to overcome all of the chaos. You have invited us and are inviting us even now to say yes to you, God. To say yes to your tove. To the goodness that you have created. To receive that we are created in your image. That would receive that and live into that. May that be our yes now, God. And then may we walk with you, be partners with you, in reconciling creation and others to you. As we are learning over and over in so many different ways that it is your heart to restore all. I bless you, God, for inviting us into your story, loving us through our chaos in the midst of our chaos, and loving us out of our chaos into your goodness. May we have open hearts and open minds now as you continue to pour into us and invite us to walk with you. In the name of Jesus, the church said,